Welcome to A Few Good Men, an Independence Day special featuring Ray Pritchard. Ray is a frequent co-host of today's issues and serves as president of Keep Believing Ministries. Now here's Ray with A Few Good Men. Happy 4th of July. Wherever you are, I hope you're having a wonderful day. 246 years ago, brave patriots gathered in Philadelphia to sign their names to the Declaration of Independence. These 56 men publicly declared their commitment to the self-evident truths that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words form the foundation of our nation and continue to serve as a beacon of hope to people around the world. Most of us are familiar with the Marine Corps slogan, we're looking for a few good men. That's appropriate because throughout history, every great battle has come down to a handful of soldiers who stood their ground in the face of withering opposition. That's what happened at Gettysburg when a few hundred Union soldiers stood fast at the bloody angle and repulsed Pickett's charge. That's what happened at Bastogne when the beleaguered and encircled men of the 101st Airborne refused to surrender to the Nazis. There is a great truth for today from that popular slogan, God is looking for a few good men, and let's be clear, also a few good women. He searches the earth to find those who will stand strong in the evil day. Why? The answer is not hard to find. A few people united for any cause can change the world. Have you ever heard of the 2% rule? I think I first heard of it during my seminary days when I spoke with the director of a campus ministry at Louisiana State University. He told me that their goal was to enlist 2% of the campus in their programs because they had discovered that with 2%, which seems like a tiny minority, they could change the moral climate of the campus. Robert Bella was a sociologist at the University of California at Berkeley. These are his words. We should not underestimate the significance of the small group of people who have a vision of a just and gentle world. The governing values of a whole culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. Now just stop. Think about that. That's what sociologist Robert Bella said, based on his research. All you need is 2%. Folks, that's not much. All you need is 2%, and you can change an entire culture. I found this confirmed when I was listening to a nationally syndicated radio talk show. At one point, the host commented that their research showed that only 2% of the audience ever attempted to call the show. Only 2%. Yet, one caller can speak to a potential audience of millions of people. In a similar way, politicians tell us that on certain issues, one letter equals 1,000 voters, and on some issues, one letter might equal 10,000 voters. The point is clear. It doesn't take many people to impact a culture. That means you can make a difference right now, right where you are. Why? Because a few people united for any cause can change the world.
Now, with that in mind, and with that as background, we turn to our text, Genesis 18. Here is a justly famous story of Abraham pleading for wicked Sodom to be spared. Now, most of us know the story in general outline. When God inspected the city of Sodom, he found sin so great that he determined to destroy it. Abraham intercedes with God, asking him to spare the city on behalf of the righteous who still live there. Now, what transpires is a rather amusing exchange between Abraham and God, as Abraham uses all his persuasive powers to induce God to spare the city. So we ask the Lord, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord replied, If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Then Abraham said, Lord, since I've begun, let me speak further, even though I am but dust and ashes. Suppose there are only 45 righteous people instead of 50. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. Then Abraham pressed his request further. Suppose there are only 40. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 40. And you get down to verse 30, Genesis 18. Please don't be angry, my Lord. Let me speak. Suppose only 30 righteous people are found. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it if I find 30. Then Abraham said, since I've dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there are only 20. And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy it for the sake of the 20. Finally, Abraham said, Lord, please don't be angry with me. If I speak one more time, suppose only ten are found there. And the Lord replied, Then I will not destroy it for the sake of the ten. And the chapter ends this way. When the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. Now, what are we supposed to make of this amazing story? Earlier, I called it amusing, but it certainly wasn't funny to Abraham after all. His family, part of his family, was there in Sodom. He wasn't just doing this as a theoretical exercise. He wanted to spare his loved ones. So he asked God, would you not spare it for 50? Then Abraham says, 45. And God agrees, and Abraham gets him down 40, 30, 20, and finally to 10. Would God spare Sodom for the sake of only 10 righteous people? The answer is yes. At that point, either God indicated he would go no lower, or Abraham decided not to press his luck. The NIV Study Bible suggests that he stopped at 10 because that number equaled Lot's wife and daughters and their husbands. That's possible too. For 10 people, the great city of Sodom could be spared. Archaeologists tell us that Sodom may have been a town of perhaps 600 to 1,000 people, yet it could have been spared if there had been only 10 righteous people. Now, let's look at three lessons from this ancient story. 
First, the character of God. No doubt, the central lesson of our passage deals with the character of God. It tells us, in the first place, about his knowledge. He knows all about the sin of Sodom. He has heard the outcry of the city. God sees and God knows. He sees every injustice in this evil world. James Montgomery Boyce catches this truth well. Listen, can't you hear those cries in your imagination? I think I hear the cry of a child, wretched, hurt, and terrified, being beaten by a drunken father. There is another cry. It is the cry of an old man assaulted by a gang of tough street youths. I hear his painful cry as they beat him around the face and the shoulders. There is the cry of a teenage girl being raped in an abandoned car. And there, the cry of a wife abandoned by her husband. I hear the cry of a man so trapped by our dehumanizing welfare system that he has given up. I hear the cry of sinful pleasures, the raucous cries in the thousands of bars that scar the faces of our city, the cries of prostitutes and those who patronize them, the soft cries of drug addicts, the arrogant cries of those who have been able to defeat their enemies or ruin their competitors. But wait, those cries are only a fraction of the millions of cries that are rising every moment of every day from every street in every city and village of our land. Cries that are all heard by God, felt by God. Must God's judgment not fall on us too and quickly? How shall we excuse ourselves when the only righteous God comes down to see if what we have done is as bad as the accusation that has reached him? This passage also teaches us about God's justice. He will not wink at sin or say, boys will be boys or live and let live. He will always do what is right. Abraham's whole prayer is based on the question in verse 25, will not the judge of all the earth do right? In the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But from this story, we also learn a powerful lesson about God's mercy. When he heard the outcry of Sodom's sin, he personally came down to investigate the case to see if things were as bad as he had heard. Furthermore, he allowed Abraham to intercede when he could have destroyed the city from the very beginning. But we see God's mercy most clearly in this one fact, he would have spared the city of Sodom, for only ten righteous people. It is often said, prayer changes things. Indeed it does. But we need to think clearly about this. Since God knows all things from beginning to end, prayer doesn't change God's mind, but it may change our mind. In this case, prayer changed Abraham's mind about God. He knew he was just, but was he also merciful? After the prayer, he could say with confidence that God is merciful, not only for hearing his prayer, but also for agreeing to spare the city for the sake of 10 righteous people. There is a lesson here also about the marks of effective intercession. When Abraham prays for Sodom, it is the first intercessory prayer in the Bible. 
to intercede is to plead the case of another person. When a friend speaks up on behalf of a student about to be punished, that friend is interceding. Likewise, when Abraham asked God to spare Sodom, he was interceding in the highest court of the universe. But that raises an interesting question. Why did God allow Abraham to intercede for Sodom? After all, God already knew the facts, and he already knew what he was going to do. Doesn't that render Abraham's request useless? To say it that way is to come up against the greatest mystery of prayer. If God already knows what he is going to do, why pray? Some of the answers to that question may be seen in our text. First, he allowed Abraham to intercede in order to reveal his mercy. Second, he did it so that we would know that he, God, takes no pleasure in destroying the wicked. Third, Abraham's prayer shows us the power righteous people can have. Fourth, in a larger sense, it teaches us the value of intercession. This is what prayer is all about. So, we can say confidently that Abraham's intercession teaches us something about God and something about prayer. It's important to realize Abraham doesn't question God's right to judge nor his decision to judge the wicked. He's not saying, who do you think you are? Or, what right do you have to destroy Sodom? Unlike modern man, Abraham understands that a holy God has the right to judge his own creation. In all that he says, he implicitly recognizes the sovereignty of God. Why then does he pray? The answer is found in verse 23 when he asks, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Good question. How can a righteous God treat righteous people the same way he treats the unrighteous? The answer is, he can't. God values righteousness even more than he hates unrighteousness. This is the basis of Abraham's prayer. As I study this text, I find four characteristics of biblical prayer. Number one, modesty. Abraham didn't know what God would do. Number two, humility. He didn't demand anything from God. Number three, persistence. He came back again and again, six times in all. Number four, persuasion. He based everything he said on God's character. And for all that, his prayer wasn't answered. Sodom was destroyed. Sometimes our prayers won't be answered either, at least not in the way that we prayed them. But it wasn't Abraham's fault nor is it always our fault. And with that truth in mind, we return again to the most fundamental truth about prayer, which is that when we pray, we must always say, Thy will be done. Finally, this passage teaches us something crucial about how the righteous can save a city. When Abraham and God finished their discussion, the bottom line had come to this. Ten righteous people would have saved Sodom. That's all, just 10 righteous people to save the city. As you ponder that truth and think about the great cities of today, recall the words of Proverbs 14:24: Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 28:12 reminds us that when the righteous triumph, there is great elation, but when the wicked rise to power, men go into hiding. That's what happened in Sodom. 
Wicked men had risen to power and the righteous had gone into hiding. Whatever influence they once had for good had been dissipated by the overwhelming power of evil. Now, how does this principle work? First, the righteous must be in the city. Only people in Sodom could save Sodom. Second, the righteous must be righteous. Third, the righteous must speak out. That is, they must make their presence felt in the affairs of life. I read an article by the pastor of a large Midwestern church. In it, he argued that evangelicals have become too enamored of politics at the expense of our calling to preach the gospel. We need, he said, to, quote, take politics out of the sanctuary. Now, I always struggle a bit when I read an article like that. After all, He's certainly right in his basic argument that only the gospel has the power to change the human heart. And it's true. Any of us, whether we're in the pew or behind the pulpit, any of us can become too enamored of the nitty-gritty of political give and take that we may lose sight of ultimate, eternal, supernatural, life-transforming gospel realities. That's always a risk, isn't it? And there is a danger that by focusing too much on moral issues, you may offend the very people you're trying to reach with the gospel. And you may end up with a bad reputation in your community. Actually, that's going to happen anyway if you're just faithful to the Word of God and preach the gospel on a regular basis. And, and I do want to say, it's not worth it to win a political referendum if we lose the battle for the souls of men and women. That much we all agree on. But how much should Christians speak out on moral issues? Question, would Sodom have been a better place if Lot had spoken out instead of apparently going along with the moral debauchery? There are times when faithfulness demands that Christians as individuals and churches as institutions speak out for good and against evil. Was Martin Niemöller wrong to speak out against Hitler in the 1930s? Was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrong to protest segregation in the 1960s? Are pro-lifers wrong to speak out against abortion today? Are we wrong to speak out against transgenderism and in favor of humanity as male and female? In these days of moral decline and total spiritual confusion, are we not obligated to speak the truth? If we don't, who will? As the salt of the earth, our words may sting at first, but then they will bring healing. United with others who share our concern, we can have great impact for good in our nation. When great moral issues are at stake, silence is treason. By speaking out, we can show how the church applies the gospel to every area of life. When the testimony is given with a winsome spirit, it can be a great encouragement to others. I'm sure you've heard it said that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Therefore, A, we focus on the gospel, and B, we speak out on moral issues when necessary. Our great need today lies in two areas. Number one, moral courage, and number two, a commitment to prayer. We need the courage to speak out and stand up for God, whatever the cost, and we need the commitment to prayer because our words and actions come to nothing without the help of heaven. 
on the basis of this passage, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is really good. You can make a difference. A few people united for any cause can change the world. What's the bad news? This passage makes it clear that it is not the presence of evil, but the absence of good that brings God's judgment. Ten people could have saved Sodom. No matter what we may think about the sin of Sodom, this much is beyond debate. God wanted to spare that wicked city. What does God see when he looks at your family, your school, your place of work, your neighborhood, your village, your city? Where are the righteous men and women who can make an impact for eternity? Now, this message has several basic applications. First, it stands as a strong warning to those living in sin. Don't mistake God's patience for unconcern. He destroyed Sodom. He will one day cast you into hell. Your only hope is to turn from your sin and cast yourself on Jesus Christ to cry out for his mercy and ask him to forgive you for all your many sins. His blood can save, but even Christ's blood is of no avail unless you trust him with all your heart. I close with a word to Christians. When all is said and done, your prayers matter more than your politics. God would have spared Sodom, not because of Abraham's protest, there was none, but because of his prayer. If we take this passage seriously, it forces us to consider one question above all others. Who are you praying for? Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. Think about this. You can reach people through prayer who won't listen to your words or even look you in the eye. They can stop you from speaking, but they can't stop you from praying. What is your Sodom? Is it your school, your neighborhood, your office, your workplace, your family? Go back and be salt. Be light. Who knows? You may end up saving an entire city. I begin by talking about the Marine Corps slogan, a few good men. What happened to the men who signed the Declaration of Independence? The late Rush Limbaugh spoke often about the influence of his father. He mentioned a talk his father gave about the signers of the Declaration, calling it the men who risk everything. What happened to those men? Here is the answer of Rush Limbaugh's father. Of the 56 who signed the Declaration of Independence, nine died of wounds or hardships during the war. Five were captured and imprisoned, in each case with brutal treatment. Several lost wives, sons, or entire families. One lost his 13 children. Two wives were brutally treated. All were at one time or another the victims of manhunts and driven from their homes. Twelve signers had their homes completely burned. Seventeen lost everything they owned. Yet not one defected or went back on his pledged word. Their honor and the nation they sacrificed so much to create is still intact. Let me add this word. Who knows the difference God's people could make if we decided to take a stand for righteousness in our own generation. On this 4th of July, let's take time to enjoy family and friends. Go to the beach, get together with some friends, grill out in the backyard, watch a parade, fly the flag, sing God Bless America. On this 4th of July, our God is looking for a few good men and a few good women. Will you take a stand? Will you pray? Will you speak out? Will you join the few and the brave? America waits for your answer. Thank you for listening to this 4th of July special broadcast. May God bless America now and forever.
You've been listening to the American Family Radio Independence Day special, A Few Good Men, featuring Ray Pritchard. If you would like to connect with Ray or learn more about Keep Believing Ministries, visit keepbelieving.com. To hear this message again, look for the podcast on AFR.net. A Few Good Men is an American Family Radio special presentation. 